It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 375 for January 12th, 2014. This week, have you ever wished you could create your own music? Well, you can. Lifelong learning has been with us since sometime in the 1980s, maybe before, and it's becoming even more important. Fortunately, it's even easier to accomplish now. In short circuits, the smallest of the four cellular providers, T-Mobile, seems to have AT&T quaking in its oversized boots. One well-known anti-malware company has acquired another, and the combination should worry thieves. Office supplies. The need for many formerly standard supplies has been all but eliminated by technology. And when my network disappeared, restoring it turned out to be a bit of a challenge. I need to make one thing very clear at the outset. I like music, and I understand how to edit audio. But that doesn't mean that I have even a small clue about how to make music or to edit music. So even if that describes you, Magic's Music Maker 2014 Premium will allow you to make your own music. A college roommate I had one summer was a music major, and he found it hard to understand that I could look at a director's music score and not be able to hear all of the instruments in my mind. The information was all there, but I couldn't process it. And I suppose that there are people who can look at what I consider to be a very simple audio voice track and not be able to see the obvious edit points. There's an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and to me it's clear without listening to this audio track that a sentence ends at a specific point, then there's a breath at the point immediately following that, a new sentence begins right after that, and then there's an expletive surrounded by a slight pause. If you would listen to the audio and watch the indicator that shows what the waveform looks like at each instant, you'd probably catch on pretty quickly. And maybe music works that way, too. But let's start at the beginning, and that's where you start the application. You'll, of course, have the option to load a project, but if you're new to this, you won't have any. You can create a new project or load a demo. That last one is the one I would suggest because it'll let you see how the program works. You may also notice an option to download free add-on packages. You really should do that, too. Once you've got all the general housekeeping out of the way, downloading those extra functions and checking for updates to the program, then load one of the demos. The one I loaded is called Dubstep Basic. As you can see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, there is a lot on the screen. Each instrument has its own track, and there are 12 tracks for this selection. Play the selection. Watch what's under the playhead. The playhead is the little red line with a triangle at the top. You'll clearly see the various instruments as they become active, play for a while, and then become inactive. You can zoom in on the timeline so you see only a few seconds at a time. That makes precision editing easier. There's a mixer with a volume control for each channel and one for the master. You'll also be able to launch a peak meter so you can confirm that none of the tracks will distort at any frequency. 
If you have a MIDI keyboard or some other MIDI instrument, Music Maker will recognize it. If not, you can use the built-in faux keyboard. It works about as well as the faux keyboards work for typing text on tablets, which is to say, not very well. So I thought I'd see what I could do, and I put together a little composition in about 10 minutes. When I tried to export the file as either a WAV or an MP3, I ran into a problem. There was what looked like an error message. The Music Maker documentation doesn't touch on this task, and when I used Google to search for clues, I found that others have had the same problem over the years, but most of the reports dealt with earlier versions of the program and versions running under Windows XP instead of the 2014 version under Windows 8.1. So what was described wasn't on my screen. Ralph from Magic's support in Germany explained that the message really wasn't terribly important. It was a minor warning to avoid bad surprises. Several of my tracks used MIDI instruments, and one of them had not been assigned to a real instrument. The tracks with MIDI information on them could be played back through the Microsoft GS wavetable, and it would be audible in the project. Ralph explained that the default general MIDI sounds are really not very good, but at least you'd hear something. But until the track was sent to a proper software instrument, the sounds wouldn't be part of the mix when it was exported. I'd already worked out much of that on my own. Ralph completed the solution by explaining how to identify the tracks that had no instrument assigned and how to assign an instrument. I had overlooked just one track, and as soon as I assigned the instrument, the export proceeded as I thought it should. So what does my first composition sound like? Here it is, and keep in mind, I made this in just 10 minutes. That's my little 10-minute project. Music Maker offers a variety of audio editing tools, effects, and more than 6,000 sounds and loops. The interface is well-designed, and even new users can figure out most of it without too much distress. That said, if you try the program, do expect to spend some time learning how to use all the tools. You can put together something simple like I did in 10 minutes, but if you want to do something really good, you're going to have to spend some time. Magic's Music Maker 2014 Premium allows for an unlimited number of tracks. How many you'll actually be able to use will depend primarily on your computer. Some parts of the application are easy to figure out, but others, such as the dead end I ran into when I tried to export a file, can be a little annoying. In addition to Music Maker, there is Music Maker Jam. It runs on Android and Windows tablets. The full version of Music Maker can import any files you create on the go in Music Maker Jam, so if you ride the bus, you can be making music as you go. Jam is designed to be an easy-to-use portable tool, and Music Maker 2014 appears more than a bit overwhelming when you first see it. So anything you create on Jam, you can just import into Music Maker. Maybe you want to start on Jam first. Music Maker is primarily aimed at using samples, but there are options that permit live recording. The MIDI editor includes a keyboard option that lets you compose your own arrangements. Just be sure to obtain a real MIDI instrument instead of trying to rely on the on-screen keyboard. 
Magic's Music Maker Premium is a clever application. It offers a lot of options for those who want to create their own music. Even if you're as clueless about the structure of music as I am, this is an application you'll find interesting to use. And if you do understand music, well, Bob's your uncle. Sorry, I guess I should have said that with a British accent. There is more to this application than what I've shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website. My goal was simply to show that even somebody who knows absolutely nothing about composing music can actually create something that's listenable. Maybe not terrific, maybe not memorable, but listenable. And for those with musical talent, well, then you've got the ability to bring in live tracks like a singer and all those MIDI instruments. This version even includes an auto-tune function to allow correcting singers who occasionally go off-key. Magix calls it Vocal Tune, and it's based on Pro Audio technology. In addition to correcting pitch on voice tracks, it can also be applied to solo instruments. This is the program's 20th year, and surprisingly the basic interface hasn't really changed much over the years, but numerous features have been added, including the ability to work with audio from videos. Now, Magix offers an online magazine that's designed to help users of the program learn how to use it more effectively. So, anybody who wants to create music can now buy the necessary tools and then acquire the knowledge needed to make the most of those tools. Bottom line, five cats. Making music might be easier than you think. There's no question that music composition is a complex topic, and a $100 program isn't going to automatically make you a rock star. But Magic's Music Maker 2014 has the tools you need, and the company's online educational resources can provide a jump start on the knowledge you'll need. You still have to apply the effort needed to master the tool, but it is a most impressive tool. You'll find additional details on the Magic's website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. learning things, maybe you want to put some education on your 2014 calendar. One of the things I learned fairly early is that you can never stop learning. People graduate from high school, college, trade school, or community college with a particular set of knowledge. Then life takes over. Maybe you're assigned to do something that you don't know how to do, or you learn about something and want to learn how you can do it. I'm often surprised to find out what people studied in comparison to what they actually do out here in real life. The chemical science major who runs a software company, an art school graduate who analyzes data, a business major who prefers teaching elementary school. Lifelong learning is a catchphrase, but it's also a way of life for a lot of people. There are, of course, organizations such as the Khan Academy, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Open Courseware, and other similar free offerings from various colleges and universities. These are all worthwhile, but if you're looking for a way to learn business software, Microsoft Office, for example, various programming and scripting languages, computer-assisted design, or any of the graphic arts, photography, layout and design, page layout, or typography, you're not going to find a better source anywhere than lynda.com. Occasionally, I obtain the equivalent of a backstage pass from the folks at lynda.com. Between the last time I visited in spring of 2013 and now, there have been some improvements that are really worthy of a wow. Many of the existing programs have a transcript, 
but the latest programs, such as one I watched by Ben Long on flash photography, has a live interactive transcript. Not all of the programs have transcripts, and only the newer programs have the interactive transcripts. As the program proceeds, the transcript scrolls, and a highlight shows the sentence that the instructor is speaking. The transcript is searchable, and if you hear something described that you want to try later, you can just copy the text and paste it into a reminder note. There's also an option to play any given program from beginning to end automatically, so you don't have to start each individual video sequence. I think this works best with programs that describe processes, but don't really include work-along example files. Whether you use the feature or not is optional. When lynda.com was founded in 1995, most of the programs were similar to PowerPoint lectures. With improvements in technology and a more or less ubiquitous presence of high-speed internet connections, the company has moved more toward putting the instructor on camera when the subject matter warrants it. Improvements in video are obvious even over the past few years, both in terms of the technical quality of the videos and lynda.com's ability to stream those videos. And it's clear that they're willing to invest in the hardware needed to obtain good video. Videographers and assistants who are capable of using the gear and post-production staff who can cut together broadcast quality programs. When you view a video, you can choose to run it full screen. This eliminates the transcript, of course, but it makes available a variety of controls. I use the rewind 10 seconds option pretty frequently. It's perfect for those moments when you think, wait a minute, what did he just say? You can also add a bookmark to a specific point in a video, or you can bookmark an entire video. I was a little surprised to learn that lynda.com has a membership of more than 4 million users, including more than half of the Fortune 100 companies, 6 of the top 10 advertising agencies, and 16 of the 20 top media companies. Given lynda.com's strong emphasis on graphic and creative arts, those advertising agencies and media companies really aren't a surprise. Some of the programs are still PowerPoint-like presentations, but if you compare some of the earlier presentations to the current crop, you'll see that production standards really have improved. Split screen is used when it's appropriate, and some of the presentations switch between live video, static text, and on-screen views. When you finish a program, lynda.com makes it possible to share information about your achievement on Facebook, LinkedIn, and other social media. This gives you something to boast about, of course, but it also provides some exposure for lynda.com and the course that you've just completed. To make sure you're aware of this opportunity, you'll receive an email within approximately three seconds of the time you finish any course. So, in other words, it seems like everybody wins here. And in the coming months, I'll tell you about some of the programs that I've found to be particularly worthwhile. The bottom line for lynda.com continues to be five cats learning at home at your own pace. Simply couldn't be any easier. lynda.com is not a university. The company provides instructional videos in several specific areas. It's particularly strong in Adobe products and Microsoft Office products. Many of the programs come with exercise files that are available to premium subscribers. They pay $35 a month. Basic memberships are $25 a month. If you want to learn something about any of the subjects available on lynda.com, go for it. Additional details are available on the lynda.com website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, 
something seems to have AT&T quaking in its oversized boots. The perceived threat is the much smaller cellular carrier, T-Mobile. AT&T is so frightened, in fact, that it's offering T-Mobile customers up to $450 in credits if they'll just abandon T-Mobile and sign up for an AT&T service. The deal, as you might expect, isn't exactly what it seems. First, there are those weasel words, up to. Switch from T-Mobile to AT&T and receive up to $450 in credits. Now, $5 is in the up to range, so is $0. And the credits aren't cash, they're credits. You have to use them to buy stuff from AT&T at full price. T-Mobile phones won't work on the AT&T network, so you have to trade in your T-Mobile smartphone. The amount you'll receive in credits for the phone is up to $250, depending on the type of phone you trade in and its condition. If you have a flip phone dating back to 2006, don't hold out for $250 credit. The other $200 worth of credit is granted only if you sign up for AT&T's Next Plan, which allows you to upgrade your phone every year, or its Mobile Share Value Plan. If you want to sign up for a standard two-year contract, no credit. This flurry of activity from giant AT&T a week ahead of the Consumer Electronics Show seemed to be an attempt to blunt T-Mobile's announcement at the Consumer Electronics Show that it will pay any termination fees incurred by AT&T customers who switch to T-Mobile. The Consumer Electronics Show itself illustrated that T-Mobile's CEO, John Laguerre, understands guerrilla tactics. He obtained a pass to AT&T's party on Monday, and then he made sure that CNET's Roger Cheng saw him. Cheng had a picture taken with Laguerre and sent it out in a tweet. A few minutes later, AT&T's security detail surrounded Laguerre and kicked him out, giving Cheng a story. He titled the story, How I Got T-Mobile's CEO Kicked Out of AT&T's CES Party. A better title would have been How T-Mobile CEO Played Me for a Fool. But Laguerre also played AT&T. By showing up and making sure that AT&T knew he was there, Laguerre pretty much ensured the outcome and a big story for his company. So CNET's reporter looks a bit like a buffoon, and AT&T looks like a small-minded bully. Score two for Laguerre. And on Wednesday, Laguerre lived up to the hype and announced that the company will pay early termination fees for new customers who were on family plans at other carriers, not just AT&T. T-Mobile is the smallest of the four primary U.S. cellular companies, but Laguerre is willing to bet as much as $600 per line that paying the termination fees will be worth the cost. Some other cellular providers, such as Credo, have long offered to pick up termination fees for new customers who switch from other providers. But Credo is very small, and it uses the Sprint network. T-Mobile has been increasingly aggressive in going after customers from competing services. Based on market research, the company found that people don't like two-year contracts, and when they travel overseas, they really don't like high roaming charges. T-Mobile addressed both of those concerns last year, and the company has picked up more than a million new users after several years of stagnant growth. The company has 209 million customers in 273 metro areas. It now has covered more than 200 million people in 233 metro areas with its faster LTE service. AT&T, on the other hand, has been playing follow the upstart by creating its own contract-free plan and by allowing more frequent phone upgrades. So maybe the company is right to be worried about this mouse that roared.
companies that work in different areas of malware protection and response have merged. One is FireEye, a security software provider. It has acquired Mandiant, a company that provides emergency responses when network security is breached. This could be bad news for crooks, but good news for the rest of us. Well, maybe not everybody. Cymatic, McAfee, and other providers of malware fighting applications might also feel a bit threatened by the acquisition. Mandiant is the company that provided strong evidence about the involvement of the People's Liberation Army of China in attacks aimed at businesses and governments. Businesses have learned that they cannot depend on the federal government's Computer Emergency Response Team, or CERT, to provide warnings in a timely manner. For example, CERT didn't warn about point-of-sale intrusions until two weeks after such an attack compromised perhaps 70 million account numbers of people who shopped at Target. Former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden's revelations haven't helped either. The merged company might find the corporate market to be interested in finding ways to protect itself from government snooping, whether the government in question resides in Beijing or Washington. Applications provided by FireEye place all inbound network traffic in a kind of sandbox where it can be safely examined for suspicious activity. The inbound data stream is released only when no threat has been found. The companies are already familiar with each other. Mandigan is one of the primary go-to organizations called in after FireEye has identified a problem. Mandigan goes in and cleans up the mess. thought this week. I wonder if office supply stores are doomed. I received an email from one of the big office supply stores and it offered me a 20% discount on a lot of common office items. The trouble is I don't need any of them. We might not be living in a paperless society, but lots of things that I once used frequently are all but gone from my office today. You probably still have a tape dispenser around, as do I, but instead of using several rolls of tape every year, it's now several years between tape rolls. I ordered a dozen rolls of tape maybe ten years ago. I think a lot of them are still on my shelf. Paper clips? Somebody offered me ten boxes of paper clips for two bucks a long time ago. I think nine of those are still unopened, and I can't think of the last time that I actually used a paper clip to hold papers together. When I use one now, I bend one of the ends so that I can insert it into an electronic device and, of course, perform a system reset. I do still use staples, generally one a day, kind of like vitamin pills. That's because I'm an old guy who still prints his calendar and his to-do list. Two pages. I want them to be stuck together, hence the staples. If you have highlighters, they probably dry out before the ink is depleted. And legal pads? I used to buy at least one pack of legal pads every year, but I haven't done that since the mid-1990s, and I still have a bunch of them around. In the 1990s, I often started writing a report for Technology Corner on paper. Then I realized there were two problems with that approach. First, I wouldn't be able to read it later. And second, if I could read it, I'd still have to type it into the computer. So why not just start there? I still use pens because I write notes on my calendar and to-do list, but a box of a dozen pens might be around long after I'm not. And I still buy them because I happen to like pens. I have stopped buying pencils, though, and leads for the many mechanical pencils I own. The feel of writing with a pencil is enjoyable, but I have enough leads to last until I'm about 350 years old. 
You know, office supply stores will survive, I suppose, but they'll do it by selling smartphones, computers, desks, and chairs. As for office supplies, they seem to be destined to join buggy whips, watch springs, and slide rules. seemed to be working normally at the computer. I uninstalled an application, rebooted the computer, and found that I had no network access. Now, for somebody who lives on the internet, that was more than a little distressing. I tried all the usual corrective measures, a system reboot, a modem reboot, a router reboot. The problem persisted. The built-in Windows diagnostic tool reported that it had reset the router, but still wasn't able to obtain an IP address. Microsoft suggested a remedy that involved running the NetSH utility, a command line and scripting utility for network components. Helper DLLs extend the functionality by providing additional commands to monitor or configure a specific networking component. What Microsoft suggested involved resetting the Internet protocol interface. It failed. I ran through several other suggested fixes without success. The final suggestion involved shutting down what's called the IP helper process. I did that, but still, no network. I restarted the computer yet again, rebooted the router once more, and success. Sometimes fixing computer problems doesn't make a lot of sense, but I did learn that the IP helper service apparently wasn't helping. So what is the IP helper service? Well, the IP helper service provides tunnel connectivity using IPv6 transition technologies. Stopping the service simply means that the computer will no longer have access to its enhanced connectivity functions. That's okay, though. And it's okay because most organizations haven't even started testing IPv6, much less implemented it. So the IP helper service remains off. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.